Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Happy Mother's Day. I read uh, one of my favorite authors this week uh, posted a a comment on his uh, media page, and he said, current totals say that there's over 8 billion people in the world And so far, every single one of them has been proven scientifically to have been born by a mother. We all share that in common. I want to read to you an apocryphal story I came across this week, and the author is unknown, but it's a little dialogue between the Lord and an angel titled, How Mothers Were Made. By the time the Lord made mothers, he was long into the sixth day working overtime. An angel appeared and said, Lord, why are you spending so much time on this one? And the Lord answered and said, have you read the spec sheet on her? She has to be completely washable, but not plastic, have over 200 movable parts, all replaceable, run on black coffee and leftovers, have a lap that can hold three children at one time and disappears when she stands up, have a kiss that can cure anything from a scraped knee to a broken heart and have six pairs of hands. The angel was astounded at the requirements for this one. Six pairs of hands? No way, said the angel. The Lord replied, oh, the hands aren't even the problem. It's the three pairs of eyes that mothers must have. That's the problem. And that's just on the standard model, asked the angel. The Lord nodded in agreement. Yep. One pair of eyes is to see through the door as she asks her child what they're doing, even though she already knows. Another pair is in the back of her head so that she can know what she uh, cannot see, even though no one thinks she can. A third pair is in the front of her head, and they're for looking at the errant child, saying that she understands and loves him or her, even without saying a single word. The angel tried to stop the Lord. This is too much work for one day. Wait until tomorrow to finish. But I can't, the Lord protested. I'm so close to finishing this one, this creation of my own heart. She already heals herself when she is sick, and she can feed a family of six on a pound of hamburger and make a nine-year-old stand up in the shower. The angel moved closer and touched the woman. But you have made her so soft, Lord. The Lord agreed. Yes, she is soft, but she is also tough. You have no idea what she can accomplish and what she can endure. Will she be able to think, asked the angel. The Lord replied, not only will she be able to think, but she will be a master negotiator and be able to reason beyond comprehension. The angel then noticed something. He reached out and he touched the woman's cheek. Oops, it looks like you made this model with a leak. I told you you were trying too hard. You need to stop working. The Lord objected, that's not a leak. That's a tear. What's the tear for, asked the angel. The Lord said, the tear is her way of expressing her joy, her sorrow, her disappointment, her pain, her loneliness, her grief, and even her pride. The angel was surely impressed. You are a genius, Lord. You thought of everything with this one. You even created the tear. That's when the Lord looked at the angel and smiled. I'm afraid you're wrong once again, my friend. You see, I created the woman. She created the tear. There are four times in the calendar of our year that, as a pastor, I find with every passing year to be harder and harder to bring a message to this congregation. 
Easter and Christmas are difficult in their own right because everybody knows the story, right? You know everything that could possibly be said about those. But Mother's Day and Father's Day proved to be particularly difficult as each passing year. For you see, having pastored this church for 17 years, these are the days that regardless of the message that I'm going to bring, as I walked into the room this morning, as I was preparing even before coming in here, I was already thinking about so many of you, particularly on a day like Mother's Day. So many who I know for a fact that this day carries with a little pain, a little twinge of hurt because you've lost your mother. Your mother's no longer here. You, you can no longer buy that card and have that celebration. You can no longer pick up the phone or visit her at time of Sunday church and sit with her. Your mother's gone. And then as I walked in the room this morning, I began looking around and I, I looked at those who have lost children, who Mother's Day has, has maybe a bittersweet connotation because there's something, they say your children are like your heart outside of your body walking around and there's that pain, that disconnect. That pain of knowing that I've talked with and Holly and I've prayed for and we've counseled with many young ladies over the years who would love to be a mother, would love to conceive and just can't, feel like they're deprived in some way of that great joy that everybody else on times like this are so happy and so joyous in their occasion. And so Christmas and Easter can be hard because the message is known. Mother's Day and Father's Day can be hard because of the feeling of terror or the pain that many times accompanies it. But I want to tell you this morning, there is something for you even in today's message. There is something for you even in what God would want to do today to bring even just for a moment a glimpse of reality, a glimpse of perspective, something different maybe you've never seen. I want to share with you today out of God's Word two of the most beautiful love stories in all of Scripture. They're found really coupled together in this small little book by the title, Ruth. Ruth chapter one in verse one says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathis of the Bethlehem's Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Now watch this. Then Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman, Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. So you see, because there was a famine in God's province of, of Judah for these people. They were Israelites. They were people of the promise. They were people of God. There was a famine in the land, and so they had a choice. They could stay there, starve, and die, or Elimelech would just pick up his family, and he would move to the plains of Moab, where he had heard there was food over there, and he could survive and provide for his family. So we all know uh, the main character of this story. It's 
the book of Ruth. So we know that the Ruth is the main character, yet she is not even yet mentioned here in this text. And we do know that there's a, a couple of characters that are, are mentioned and then, and then simply go away. All the men of the story at the, the beginning, they're mentioned and they, they simply go away, they die. But Naomi is a lesser known character in this book and I would say she is, uh, if not secondary, she has to be top of the list of main characters in this book. Naomi by name means pleasantness. Her name means, you know, names have meaning. Her name means to be pleasant or have a, a pleasantness. And Naomi would be admired even in our day for the way that she was uh, pressing on even after having become a widow. How that uh, being a single mother, she raised her boys and she, raising them, uh, had, had a, a season where she took care and she nurtured them. But in ancient times, this was even more so of a respectable nature because she not only survived, but against all odds, she raised her boys well and walked them into the place of marrying. But after the death of her husband, it seemed like things had kind of gone back to normal. It seemed like she was really weathering the storm pretty good. And, and for 10 years, Naomi really has a season, you could say a snapshot of time, where things were turning out pretty good. Her boys had been raised now. They were respectable young men. They even met and married, and they had wives. And so Naomi's life looked like, okay, th this is going to track along for a while. And sure, I'm a widow, but I have a heritage. I have family. Now I have a promise for the future. And then the unthinkable happens. Her two sons also die. We don't know how. The scripture doesn't tell us. But it seems to be sudden, and it seems like it, it happened, if not close together, at the very same time. And now we have in the story three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, all three widows. Now about this season and this time of, of history, here's what you need to know about widows. Without a posterity, without a male in the household, they had no money, no means, no support, and little hope. And that right there, my friends, is when most people would have considered throwing up their hands, throwing in the towel, and giving up. But here is a woman who full well knows what grief and pain and loss feels like. She knows the fear of lack and the potential for poverty, and yet she has a responsibility to these two daughters-in-law. Maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you know someone who has experienced great loss, deep burden after burden. It seems like nothing is turning out well for them. Everywhere they turn, it seems like maybe there is a cloud of curse over them. Nothing is turning out the way that you would think. Yet they stood to fight another day. Naomi is a mother. Naomi is a God-given gift to these two daughter-in-laws, and she had a knack for survival. And that's something of grit and tenacity that you can see about mothers is there's almost this innate wiring in them that they keep on keeping on even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now here's where we see the grit of Naomi. Verse six, it says this, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that they might return from Moab for she had heard that in the country of Moab, 
the Lord had visited his people with bread. So here she is in the plains of Moab. She's in a, a foreign land. She'd lived there for at least a decade, probably longer now, maybe a couple of decades. And from that place, from Moab, from a foreign city, she had heard that the city she came from, from Judah, that the Lord's land, Lord had visited his people with bread. So she had heard from a distant land that there was a promise of blessing of food in the land of which she was a native, where she grew up. And she thought, you know what? If I'm gonna have a future, if there's gonna be anything that turns out good for me and these daughters-in-law, we're gonna go back to my homeland. We're gonna go back to where I came from. You know, there's always this, this sense of nostalgia about yesteryear. There's this sense of things turned out better when times were differently. Uh, there was this, this memory of hers when she left uh, the land of, of Judah. Yeah, there may have been a famine, but she was married. She was uh, ready to give birth to her children. She was a woman who was younger. And so she was remembering back all of the good things about yesteryear. And it's sad to say that so many people get to a stage of life where all they can do is ever look in the rearview mirror of their life and just reminisce about how good yesterday was. And they miss the present moment of blessings all because they are looking back constantly at how good yesterday was. Yet, if they could time travel, if you and I could be teleported back to 10 years ago, this very same Sunday, 10 years ago, we would probably observe as a, 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 a person looking in on our situation that there were still complaints, there was still grumbling, there were still problems and trials and some things that weren't turning out the way we wanted even 10 years ago. Yet we always romanticize the past, don't we? So Naomi, with a reminiscing of the past, said, you know, I'm gonna take these two girls and we're gonna go to my homeland. When she gets out on the journey, she doesn't get too far, and she realizes maybe this isn't a good plan after all. Maybe this is okay for me to go back. Maybe what I'm remembering it has a special place in my heart, but these two Moabite girls, these daughter-in-laws of mine, they have never been to that land. They have family here in Moab. They can still go back to their homes. They can still go back to their mothers. They're young enough. They can marry again. They can marry Moabite men. They can have a semblance of normalcy in their lives. And so we see something at first in Naomi that these daughter-in-laws were not just simply daughters by marriage, but in-laws to her were true family. And maybe you don't have the blessing that I have to have in-laws that are just like family. But some people, they know what it means to have someone in their family that even though they're not a blood relative, they feel just as much like family. You know, you and I have this same kind of bond in the household of faith, the family of God. There are many times that people in the family of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord, feel closer to you than even your own relatives do many times. There's a commonality, there is a link. And Naomi felt that so deeply that she does something that shows a true grit. She shows selfless love in action. And here's what she does in verses eight and nine. It says, and Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, as you have dealt with my sons who now have died, you, you have been good daughters-in-law, I'm gonna release you. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So what Naomi's basically doing is she's speaking a blessing over these daughter-in-laws to say, move on with life, go ahead, remarry. You are free, you can go. You don't need to go with me back, you can go. And here's what it says. 
Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Can you see the the deep love and connection that they had? These were not just in-laws. These were family members. And it says that both of the women, they, 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 they were grieving the loss not only of their husbands and not only the, the, the things that Naomi had been through, but they're grieving now that they are being told by Naomi, their only uh, parent, parental figure, that now they're free. You know, it's been said that if you love something, then let it go. And if it comes back to you, then it loves you in return. And Naomi took this bold step. The only chance that she would have ever had in life to have any sustenance or any provision where if her daughter-in-laws were to remarry and find kindness to take her into their home, then she could be provided for. Now she's cutting off every supply line in her life. Naomi is going to cut off the very provision or promise or hope of any provision by saying to these two women, it's time for you to go back home. I know we started out on this journey to go back to my home. I believe that Naomi had a little conviction about it and she realized, no, this isn't right. I can't I can't make them go back to a foreign land. I know how hard it is to come to a new land. I am going to release them so they can go back to their own home. You can see the deep connection because all three of the women wept about this. And the Bible says that Orpah rises up and she goes back home. And that's fine. That's understandable. That's what Naomi let her do. But Ruth does something different. A surprising response is found in verses 16 and 17. Look at what Ruth says. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. Look at the vow. Look at the commitment. This is, this is a, a, a startling response that I don't think that, that Naomi expected. She expected both of them to just go off and have their good life. And Orpah did that. We don't know how things turned out for Orpah. She doesn't show up again in the story, but we do know that Ruth makes this declaration. She said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. We are family now, nothing will separate us. And then she says this, your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. Nothing is going to separate us. Sounds a whole lot like a marriage vow for better or for worse in sickness and in health, for richer and poorer till death do we part. These are vows that a husband and wife will take and commit to for life. And this is the similar kind of vow that somehow, whether she was taught it or whether it was just on the inside of her, that Ruth welled up and expresses to her mother-in-law. Now, her mother. We can drop the in-law because this is her mother. Isn't it amazing that through Naomi's life, Ruth could see God. Ruth could see and sense that there was something that she wanted and she never wanted to leave that was present in Naomi's life. 
There was something so attractive, something so powerful, something that was so drawing to her where she would able to, to be able to say, your God will be my God. This speaks to the great influence that Naomi had. She had gained the respect and admiration of Ruth. And maybe as a mother today, you're reading a story like this and you're in a place where you look around and some of your children aren't serving the Lord. You've prayed, you've asked the prayer group to pray, you've interceded, you've witnessed, you've testified, and you're still holding out hope that one day maybe they'll come into the ark of safety. Here's what you need to know. Children have a choice. Both Orpah and Naomi were given the same opportunity to go. In fact, they were asked, invited to go, to leave. Orpah did, she left. Ruth stayed. I talk to parents often that put so much condemnation and self-guilt and, and, and so many uh, burdens on their own shoulders because of the way that their children have turned out or the way that someone in their family has gone astray or, or the, the embarrassment maybe of, of someone bringing shame upon a family and it feels as though they weren't good Christians or they didn't raise them right or they went wrong in parenting or there was something that if they'd just done more, if they just would take a swifter action, maybe they should have been more loving, maybe they should have been more corrective, maybe they should have been more stern, maybe they should have been a little less stern. They, they, all the time second-guessing themselves. And here's what you need to know as a parent today is that children have their own choice. Naomi lost her two boys to death and lost one daughter to choice. She went away and only one remained. But the one that remained made a declaration that should encourage every mother in here, every parent, is that Ruth made the declaration that Naomi, there is something in you that I see, I observe, I have witnessed, I have watched, I have longed for knowing the God that you know. Will you teach me these ways? Will you mentor me in how that you have such a solid and steadfast faith, even in the midst of loss and pain and turmoil? Can you show me that? Now, I believe that there is this sense of building up that, that uh, Naomi is being built up and almost put on a pedestal in this moment. This is one of the most sentinel scriptures in all the Old Testament, that your God will be my God, that where you die, I will die, that where you're buried, I'll be buried. This is quotable. This is, this is amazing. I love this text, but Naomi on this great pedestal, this great parenthood pedestal is about to have a break, a crisis of conscience. She's about to get to a moment where she doesn't feel like she belongs on that pedestal. In fact, she believes she belongs hear me, in the dirt. She doesn't feel strong. She doesn't feel godly. Someone else may be observing this, but she feels weak. She feels broken. She feels wounded because in verse 20, it says this. As she gets back home now, now she, she arrives with Ruth. Ruth and Naomi now arrive back into the city and the people are saying, wait a minute, is this Naomi? It's been a long time since we've seen you. Wow, this is Naomi. She has come home. And here's what she says. But she says to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Look at just a couple of verses later, being built up on a great pedestal, and now she's in the midst of people that she remembers, an environment that she's familiar with, and they're allotting how, how great it is to see her, and she's saying, wait a minute, when I left you, I was a different person than I am now. Don't call me 
pleasantness anymore. Don't call me Naomi. My name from here on shall be Mara, which means bitterness. Naomi basically asserts and demands a name change. She gets back into this former environment that she had romanticized, that she had thought about. It'll be better when I get there. And only to get there and realize this is not how I remembered it. If any of you ever gone to like your childhood home, you go back to your childhood home and, and you look at it and you say, wow, it looks a lot smaller than I remember it being. Your childhood town and maybe the school that you, you went to school in and you realize this is a lot smaller. It looks different in real life than it does in retrospect in your mind's eye. And when Naomi was thinking about going back home, she remembered all the great things. But now that she gets into the host of friends and all the people greeting her, I can imagine all the other friends of her class were greeting her, the, the, the girls that she grew up with, and they had their families with them, and they're celebrating. Oh, look, this is great. Naomi's back. And they've got children in tow, maybe grandchildren now in tow. And she's looking at all of their blessing and thinking to herself, all of my lack. And this isn't what I remembered. This isn't how I thought it would be. And someone else's joy and triumph and celebration becomes her pain, her misery, and her bitterness. And where does she place the blame? She doesn't place the blame on mother nature. She doesn't place the blame for her husband dying on medical uh, liabilities and things that maybe his health hazards and occupational hazards of the job he had. She doesn't place the blame on her son's dying as some freak accident. She places the blame squarely where she believes that it belongs. She says, the Almighty, it was God who did this to me. God has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty. Why do you call me Naomi, pleasantness? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. You know, this is the tantamount to Naomi shaking her fist at God, saying, God did this to me. God afflicted me. He has testified against me. After all, why would anyone have the lot in life that I have if it were not God who put them in this pit? Naomi has some bad theology about God, but she has some true feelings about the human heart. She has some things that all of us can learn from, that when we are afflicted, when we go through pain, when we go through loss, there is on the inside of us this sense of bitterness that is a human reaction. And let me tell you, people can offer all kinds of trite words, and most people mean well in time of loss when they say things, when they try to comfort, like Job's comforters. <laughs> All the reasons why something happened. Listen, in the midst of a child dying, there is no medical rationale that a parent wants to hear in that moment. In the midst of losing a loved one, there is nothing that logically we want to think through in that moment. And so Naomi concludes the only thing that most humans can is that God could have stopped this. God could have intervened. God could have stepped in but instead he has chosen to afflict me. So don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. The last time I, I went out, I went out full. She's reminiscing about when she left the town. She was young, beautiful, energetic. She was poised with the full life of promise. 
But now time had taken its toll. Now she was older. She was widowed. Financially broke and physically broken down to the point of depressed. Her past season was one of vitality and desirability. She felt like at this time, that season is over. And now life has dealt her a bad hand. Naomi gets so honest, and I do have to appreciate this about her, because many of us, we wanna sanitize our complaints and sanitize our words, but not Naomi. Naomi just gets very raw and very real and says, life used to be good, life is now bad, I just want to be bitter. And just like children have a choice, you and I have a choice. We can be bitter or we can ask God to get better. Choice is ours, it's up to us. She actually requests a name change as she pours out her complaints before the people and about God. But notice this, I love this about the story. You can go home and read Ruth. It's only four chapters you can read in a, in a quick setting. You can read this about Ruth. Even though she says, don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant no more, uh-uh. I'm not even playing games. I wanna be bitter, just call me bitter. I am a bitter, mad, angry, cranky old woman. Call me bitter. But all throughout the rest of the story, even though she requests the name change, you will never see her name called Mara. You will never see anybody refer to her as Mara. Even though she says, I'm bitter, just call me bitter. Everyone continues to call her Naomi. Everyone continues to prophesy and speak over her. Every time they call her name, it's pleasantness. You may be bitter, but you're pleasant. You may feel bitter, but I'm gonna call you pleasant. You may look broken, but I'm gonna call you blessed. I'm gonna call you what you don't even know you are. And this is the great news about our God is that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. He calls us better than we think we are because he sees us redeemed. You have a loving heavenly father that sees you as a finished product, whole and complete, even in the midst of your brokenness even in the midst of your bitterness, he refuses to change your name to how you feel. He speaks over you who you are. Naomi, you're pleasant. Your life shall be pleasant. Fast forward just one chapter, chapter 20. I can't get into the second love story. The first love story is about a mother and a daughter. The second love story is about this daughter, Ruth, and Boaz, her kinsman, redeemer. I can't get into the whole story, but Ruth 22 and 20 says, then Naomi, see again, it's not Mara. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord, that's talking about Boaz, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living or the dead. There was this, this turn in events that there was a relative, his name was Boaz, that, that was able to... Um, marry into the family and extend the lineage of uh, Melion, who was the, the husband, former husband of Ruth. And he had the opportunity that he could enter into a marriage contract in relationship with Ruth. Naomi notices this because she sees the favor and kindness that he gives to her as she's gleaning in the field. And he leaves a little extra handfuls of blessing for Ruth because 
he was attracted to her. And, and there was something that, that uh, was desirable as he said, tell me who this is. And so he ends up asking about Ruth and has her stay in his field. And Naomi's picking up on all of these cues. She's wise. She's skilled. She understands culture. Even when Naomi didn't understand the culture of this day, she understood. And so time has changed things. A little bit of time has given her perspective. And in this, like all of us, that in the midst of the fight, in the midst of our complaint, in the middle of what we're going through, we don't want to hear logic. We don't want to hear reason. We don't want even to hear Bible verses. But when we get through, now here's, here's the thing you have to understand about this life of faith. We are never promised that God will pluck us out of the storm and put us on dry land. What we are promised is that he will go with us even in the midst of the storm. He will go with us in the midst of our pain. Even while we're bitter, he walks us through that bitterness. And so time has changed. And now Naomi sees on the horizon something of an opportunity for Ruth. And Ruth certainly deserved an opportunity after all the kindness that she had showed Naomi. After all the, the loyalty that she had showed Naomi, she certainly deserved some kind of kindness shown to her. And so... This opportunity develops into a marriage proposal. And it is a gain of perspective that she didn't have just a little while ago. And I wanna encourage someone who is going through the midst of some pain. You're going through something that it seems inconceivable how you'll ever get to the other side. You don't even really understand what it looks like to have joy and peace and love in your life anymore. I wanna encourage you that your perspective will change. Your, your, your outlook can change, that God can do something immeasurably, incalculable, bigger than what you can even ask or imagine. Just hold on, just hang in there. God's not through with you yet. If you're still breathing, there's a purpose. God has a plan for you. He wants to give you a new perspective. I want to read to you the final few verses of the book. I didn't give this to the media team. I, I want to read to you something. It says that after Ruth and Boaz marry, that she conceives and she has a child. And it says that Ruth has become to Naomi better than seven sons. Now the words, the number seven in scripture is complete. And so to have seven sons would be your quiver is full. A son is posterity. A son means a future lineage and heritage for the family. And to have, two, to have one son is a blessing, but to have seven means you have been immeasurably blessed by God. And it says that now Ruth has become better to Naomi than seven Sons, You talk about provision. You talk about blessing. You talk about something coming to full fruition. Then verse 16 says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. The long desire that she had, now she finally could nurse a child. And it says it's her child. It's not. It's Ruth's child. It's her grandchild. But this is how the Bible speaks a lot, is that there is no distinguishing between family lines. It is family. And look what it says. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they shall call his name Obed. 
He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. This child is in the lineage from a Moabite woman like Ruth. She gives birth to Obed, who gives birth to a man named Jesse, who lines up all of his boys as Samuel comes looking for the, the king that God would anoint and says, are there any others? And he says, well, I got one little shepherd boy out in the field. Well, bring him to me. And his name happens to be David. And of David, the Bible says that his throne shall be established and he shall be a blessing to all generations. You know that the, the lineage of Jesus is actually traced back in Luke and in Matthew going all the way back to Adam, really, but it goes through the line in the house of David. Obed, this boy that Ruth gives birth to, that Naomi nurses, is now in the setup, in the lineage of giving birth eventually to the very Messiah, the Son of God. Now Naomi blesses the Lord and in the end, she brings praise to God. Finally, we see this strong mother, Naomi, leaving a proud heritage of faith and a legacy of trust, even in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. She now has a grander perspective of the plan of God, of the scheme of life, of how everything is turning out. And here's what I want to tell you. Life will certainly deal you both pleasant and bitter experiences. None of us are promised to ever have just only pleasant experiences. We will have bitter experiences. Mothers remind us of this power of pressing on, of the, the joy of them carrying a child to birth and the labor and pain of that experience does not in any way diminish, even though it is painful, it doesn't diminish the next season of that mother's hopefulness of what that child can be and become. They press on caring for their new infant, nurturing and caring for their children all life long. They never stop. Mothers never stop caring for their children, never stop mothering their children. We can all learn a lot from mothers. The amazing grit that mothers have to not give up in times of testing or bitterness, but to press on because we never know the pleasantness that waits just ahead. I wanna close with this poem that I found, this source unknown. It says, one day as I was picking up toys off the floor, I noticed a small handprint on the wall beside the door. I knew that it was something that I had seen most every day, but this time when I saw it, I just wanted to stay. Then tears welled up on the inside of my eyes. I knew it wouldn't be the last for every mother knows her child will grow up too fast. Just then I put away my chores and put them aside. I held my children tight and sang them lullabies long into the night. Sometimes we take for granted all those little things that seem so small, like one of God's great treasures, which could just be a small handprint on the wall.